everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Seamless Connection podcast. I have with me today Dr. Amy Patel from Liberty Hospital in Missouri, and I'm thrilled to be able to talk to her about all things AI and radiography related. So, um, Amy, I wanted to first start off with thank you for taking the time today as, as a little bit of background uh, for the audience. Um, you're a board for certified radiologist and you specialize in breast imaging. Um, as well as being the medical director of the Breast Care Center at Liberty um, and an assistant professor of radiology at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. So I'd love to start off with handing it off to you to, to add anything else to that intro, but also to tell the audience, you know, what got you into that? One of the questions I get the most frequently from, from not just listeners, but just friends and family members and people I just meet on the street is, you know, why did the doctor go into that field, right? And so for you, especially, you've done a lot of extra research. You're not just a practicing physician, but you're a practicing researcher and you've done a lot of work in this area. Um, and so would love to get a sense from you in terms of what got you into it, what got you interested and what was your personal connection there? Sure. So I have always had an interest in women's health and it sort of stemmed from, I grew up in very rural Northwest Missouri, where I saw a lot of disparities growing up and just not much of an emphasis on women's health. So specifically when I went to medical school, I, I thought I was going to go home and be a primary care physician and with an emphasis on women's health. But I ended up doing a breast radiology medical, stu uh, medical uh, student rotation, and I just fell in love with breast imaging. I felt that uh, it had all the facets, the diagnostic uh, the diagnostic aspects at the workstation, the in patient interaction, the complex, interesting cases, the focus on women's health. Uh, there was just so many facets that I found fascinating. And from there on out, I sort of was committed. Even in my radiology residency, I tried to keep an open mind, but I kept going back to breast imaging. I also have interests uh, in addition to advocacy and health policy. And there's a lot of work that's being done in the breast cancer space uh, regarding that. So for me, it really was uh, beneficial in terms of my passions and how they could sort of intermingle with one another. Uh, so in addition to uh, me being a breast imager and medical director here at Liberty uh, and on faculty at UMKC, I also chair the American College of Radiology and their grassroots advocacy network. So for me, this really is a life calling and bridging the gap to breast care disparities in all different ways, whether it's advocacy, legislative, AI, uh, so on and so forth. In terms of the work you've been doing most recently, you've been doing a lot of work on um, for, about what AI is doing and being on the cutting edge of how that's playing into breast radiography. One of the things that we see people most concerned about is, and actually my uh, my sister-in-law said this to me today, is is this going to replace doctors, right? And and that's that's a big concern for everybody and for physicians and non-physicians alike. So I guess just to start off with that, um, do you think AI will replace radiologists and physicians of other medical specialties and why or why not? So I know that there's a lot of fear with AI. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, alternatively, a lot of optimism and hope. Uh, but, you know, I think that most of us who are in this AI space, who do have this avid interest in it, who are conducting research, we fervently feel that AI is not going to replace physicians and healthcare. Rather, AI is just going to make us better at what we do. I mean, we have to be realistic with what's going on in healthcare. Regardless of whether you're a radiologist or a cardiologist, any medical specialty, we have perpetually rising volumes. Burnout is a big issue. Uh, 
there are so many retiring physicians, we can't hire fast enough, especially in radiology, burnout is at an all-time high, uh, and there's so many radiologists retiring, so fatigue really comes into play. So, you know, at the end of the day, in, particularly in radiology, we are going to be the guiding light, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, detection, when it comes to breast cancer detection with what I do as a breast radiologist. But ultimately, AI is going to improve what we do. It's going to enhance what we do. And those of us who are using AI in the clinical research space currently are seeing those results. So in terms of kind of the areas that you've seen it have the most potential or you think it could have the most potential if people gave it the opportunity to do so and didn't let fear kind of cloud the way, what are you most excited about? Well, I'm excited about cancer detection. I mean, we know particularly what we're seeing in radiology and in breast radiology, we can use AI for both interpretive and non-interpretive skills. So anywhere from breast cancer detection to even helping with improving workflow efficiency. So that's really exciting that we're seeing the whole comprehensive aspect of what AI can do to benefit our lives and our careers. Uh, but really when it comes to uh, cancer detection, a risk stratification for patients, we know we're entering this era of personalized breast care and risk, risk assessment. Uh, there's so much promise that is being held in this space. And that's what I'm really excited about as we continue to strive to personalize breast care for our cancer patients, uh, as we become more aggressive with you know, earlier surveillance in younger women uh, and beyond, uh, AI has, is showing a lot of promise. Now, I know with cancer detection, and I'm wondering if it's very similar to what we've seen for stroke from the neurology side of things or with, you know, from the orthopedic side where you use AI to detect minute fractures or to detect strokes where they, where the AI algorithm can go through and then flag it for the, for the live physician. Is that kind of similar kind of give and take process you see between a live physician as well as the AI algorithm kind of processing that image together to come up with the fastest and best interpretation? Yeah, so, you know, specifically triaging of patients is something we were talking a, a lot about in, in breast radiology. You know, can we have an AI tool where essentially you have a list of screening mammograms that, you know, might be just sitting there as you're, you know, getting through your day? And can the AI algorithm essentially risk stratify for us, basically flag the, the mam screening mammograms at the top of the list that it is detecting a cancer so we can get to them sooner so that we can get the patients and faster for workup and biopsy uh, because we know that it's so imperative from the time of diagnosis to table time during uh, to the time of ta table time for surgery that's really important for us to try to get these patients in so the triaging aspect as well not just the cancer detection uh, that the uh, AI algorithms can essentially demonstrate, uh, but also just the triaging of telling us on our screening list, hey, this is the batch of screens that the AI tool is flagging that we need to have a more, you know, expedient uh, evaluation so that we can get these patients going. Do you think we'll ever get to the point, because that's half the problem, the other half is what do you do with the last part of that batch that isn't flagged, right? So do you, we're all humans, we all, human nature is if you, if it gets continually pushed to the bottom of the pile, will there ever be a point where we can safely have AI read those entirely without human eyes passing over those? Well, there are, you know, there's some in our field and we've had debate about this and some of my colleagues said, wouldn't it be great where we had all these screens 
and we didn't even have to look at them, that AI could essentially look at these and call them negative, call it a day, and we could not, you know, look at them at all. I think some of us feel a little nervous about that. I specifically do. Uh, I think it, we're, you know, we're a little bit far off from the, that happening. But, I mean, could it happen in the future? Potentially, yes. Uh, but then, of course, there's that concern that comes into play that, Will AI replace a radiologist? So, you know, there, it's sort of a catch-22. But I think at this point, most of us uh, who are in the AI space, I don't think we'd feel comfortable at this point just saying, let's leave it to AI to look at all these screens without our eyes actually physically looking at them. Nope, that makes completely make sense. Now, I want to circle back to something you said a little bit earlier in terms of talking about the burnout among the radiology uh, uh, specialty field. Well, if you had to kind of highlight the key drivers of that burnout, because I'm guessing it's slightly different than what you would see from a cardiologist or a neurologist or a surgeon or something like that. Um, what do you think or what can you tell us about the key drivers of burnout in radiology specifically? Because I'd like to understand how much can AI potentially help with something like that by, you know, lightening the, the workload, maybe making things faster, or maybe or maybe it doesn't. Maybe, the, you know, the volume of cases is not the issue, but it's something else entirely. Sure. I mean, we always are striving. We have a thirst for improved accuracy when it comes to cancer detection. And, you know, simply a lot of our burnout in radiology is coming down to rising volumes, imaging volumes that are not slowing down uh, since, uh, you know, specifically during COVID, we sort of had a pause on routine screening mammograms. We had a pause for elective imaging. And since then, since the pause has been lifted, the volume just continued to proliferate. Uh, imaging utilization has increased quite significantly. I mean, I look back from when I was a resident to chief resident and the volumes that just continued to explode. I look at now to, you know, being six years into practice and how the volumes just continue to proliferate. And as the volumes grow and you don't have radiologists to essentially help with that volume, you're reading more, you're working longer hours, you're getting more mentally fatigued, and you, you're missing things. I mean, we're human, you know, as much as we don't want to miss things, and we're trying very vociferously to make sure that we're not missing any cancers, uh, it's something that is very, very real. Uh, and, you know, in this country, specifically when it comes comes to breast imaging, we typically have one radiologist who reads a mammogram. Uh, specifically in other countries, particularly in Europe, they often have the two radiologist model where you have two radiologists looking at a mammogram. So that also can contribute uh, to the fatigue as well. So uh, for us, you know, it's just getting busier and busier. And a lot of this burnout has to, uh, you know, is attributable to our rising volumes, longer work hours. Uh, and of course, that trickles into our personal lives too. You know, it can put a strain on on families as well when you're working longer hours. So all of these things are really, you know, contributing to uh, fatigue, contributing to burnout. Hospital systems, I do feel, are, are trying their best efforts to help mitigate burnout. I know at our hospital, we have a, you know, a chief wellness officer and they are trying ways to reach out to physicians and non-physician staff for burnout. But it's something that's very real and um, I don't see it going away anytime soon. No, and that's unfortunately something that we hear echoed across all specialties that we've talked to across the field and across all parts of the country. So in terms of thinking about ways to help mitigate, like you mentioned, having a chief wellness officer, having your workplace take it seriously in terms of, um, you know, we need to have 
ways for physicians to also have downtime and, and take a step back and, and to be able to tap out if they need that mental break and that mental space. Um, you know, and we've all heard, you know, with the boomers retiring and, and everyone getting multiple comorbidities and living longer and therefore getting more cancers, et cetera, that that volume, it does not look like is, is going to mitigate itself anytime soon. So in terms of looking at the potential for AI to, to help with that, whether or not you ever take out, uh, the, the quote unquote negative reads or, uh, that, you know, they might or might not screen for what kind of impact could it have if we're looking at kind of the best potential and kind of the, the kind of maximum opportunity for AI? Are we talking an hour saved? Are we talking a couple hours saved? Is it more of a prioritization and not necessarily time saved? Like, how do you envision how it could potentially help with burnout? And I know there's, there's different aspects of benefits of AI, but specifically thinking about it from a burnout perspective or potentially helping your peers get their work done. Yeah, I think all of the above. I think for priority, prioritization at time saved, I think absolutely. Uh, and we're now starting to see studies, uh, larger studies, uh, particularly there was a study in Hungary as of recently where they looked at over 35,000 mammograms and with a specific uh, AI algorithm detected, uh, the AI algorithm detected 13% more cancers than the radiologists who actually reviewed the mammograms. So, uh, so again, there's accuracy, improved accuracy there. Uh, and then, of course, the prioritization and the time saved, uh, there's a lot of potential here. But uh, specifically, you know, with, again, with burnout, with us and just feeling so fatigued a lot of times, just the fact that these studies are now showing uh, such an increased cancer detection rate that uh, is unbeknownst, uh, whether it's mentally due to our fatigue, whether we just, it, we cannot see it due to the human eye, uh, specifically if there's other factors contributing to the mammogram, maybe the patient has a dense breast, maybe there is a cancer being obscured by dense tissue, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, there's so many uh, implications here and so many benefits I think that AI uh, can have for us, uh, which holds a lot of promise for the future. No, that's fantastic. And now one, one of the things I do have to ask, I know it can be controversial, and I know there was a lot of guidance changes recently in terms of when you should have your first mammogram and the benefits of early screening versus false positives and all that. How do you think about that with respect to AI? Because it, AI would be more sensitive, I would assume, than, than, than the human eye, right? So it, does the likelihood of false positives and the stress and costs associated with that increase with the use of AI or not really based on kind of the data that you've seen and the research you've done? Yeah, I mean, I think that we're still very early into this, and that's the goal, right? So specifically, as mammography has evolved, we had, you know, film screen, Now, then we had 2D digital mammography, now we have digital breast tomosynthesis, which is 3D mammography, uh, and now with the advent of 3D mammography or DBT, we're seeing a, a reduction in a recall rate, so a reduction in the amount of false positives. And I think coupled with digital breast tomosynthesis and AI, uh, we can get that cancer, uh, essentially that callback rate or recall rate down even further uh, so that we do uh, mitigate false positives. Because we know with false positives comes patient anxiety, patient cost. Uh, so I think coupled together and specifically with the radiologist at the helm, uh, it shows great promise to reduce uh, false positives. 
That's fantastic. Um, and because I do know uh, from personal experience and most of my family as well, that false positive time period from that first screen to that second follow up to the biopsy, it's just you're, you're on pins and needles waiting, right, for, for those results. So. Yes. And specifically, too, it's not just mammography. Uh, when we look at ultrasound, uh, specifically here at uh, our hospital, we have implemented artificial intelligence breast ultrasound technology as of 2019. And so far from the studies that we have evaluated. We're able to maintain our cancer detection rate, uh, but we are we were able so far to reduce our unnecessary biopsies by approximately about 30%. So that really gives patients peace of mind too, that although, you know, the radiologist is making the call, here we have this AI algorithm that acts as a second opinion consult that analyzes a lesion uh, based on a million essentially of uh, cases based on radiologic and pathologic correlation and it analyzes hundreds of thousands of uh, regions of interest of the lesion and so you know it, it can be a bit daunting or a bit confusing to a patient when you try to explain to them what you're kind of using to help with your uh you know your prog prognosis essentially but we're seeing such great promise uh, using something like AI breast ultrasound in terms of ensuring that we can mitigate uh, all of the uh, unnecessary biopsies for patients as well. And that's actually um, really interesting because I wasn't aware of, of that as an option. I know you're doing a lot of great work at Liberty with AI overall, so I want to get into that in a second. But just to explain it a little bit further for the audience, what you're saying is a patient goes in, has a mammography, is called back in or has something flagged of concern, and then you, instead of doing the biopsy immediately, you take that extra step of doing the uh, ultrasound with the AI algorithm, and that will actually clarify further if you actually need that biopsy or not. Is that yeah, so specifically, if we see something on mammography and we call it back, uh, we then if we if it persists, we may say let's send the patient to ultrasound. The patient goes to ultrasound, we see an area of interest, area of concern, and then at that point, we can use this AI algorithm to analyze the lesion, and basically, it can give it different categories whether it thinks it's benign, probably benign, uh, if it's suspicious for a cancer, uh, and so it can be really helpful again as a second opinion consult tool. Uh, so we've really enjoyed having this. Uh, but, you know, it's it takes time, right? Uh, this isn't like a one-stop approach. You have to kind of use this over time uh, because these algorithms improve over time. So uh, although, you know, some people, I know people think sometimes that AI is a little bit hyped, like, oh, I can, you know, I can find these cancers on my own. I don't need AI to help me, etc. cetera. Um, I do feel that it is improving uh, what we're doing in our practice. And regardless whether you might be on the younger, you know, side of the spectrum like me career-wise or some of my colleagues who are in their, you know, 50s, 60s, they also see the utility in this. Uh, it's just an incredible sort of second opinion consult and way for us uh, to improve uh, the efficiency and improve patient care. Oh, that's fantastic. And in terms of what else you're working on at Liberty, because I know this is near and dear to your heart more broadly for the community, what else are you working on with AI or with uh, breast cancer um, across the board? Yes. So, you know, specifically, you know, we're working on with AI breast ultrasound, we don't have uh, 
really significant widespread reimbursement of AI throughout the country. And and at the end of the day, uh, if, if AI is not being reimbursed, there are a lot of hospital systems that are a little hesitant to adopt. And also, you know, in, in more importantly, uh, you know, patients need access. Now, we are doing uh, AI here for sort of more research purposes, so we don't charge patients uh, for the AI. But there are places in the country that have AI, particularly ultrasound, and are charging a cash pay for patients. Well, some patients can't afford cash pay. So we're working on in this uh, market, in this area, to try to have insurance coverage uh, for this as well, uh, so that patients can have access, uh, whether they're at this hospital system or another hospital system throughout the country. So access is something that's really important. Uh, so those are sort of, you know, I think having the AI tools are wonderful, but I think that ensuring that patients having access is even more important so that we can have widespread utilization. Uh, and it's also important, too, because we want more diverse data, right? So specifically, we want to make sure that this data is generalizable amongst multiple populations. So we need to ensure that, you know, with particularly the vendor we work with for AI ultrasound, we need to make sure that we have data from here in the Midwest, from data from the East Coast, from the South, different populations, different patients of color. We need to make sure that the data is more diverse because that has been, of course, the biggest um, sort of controversy or the biggest beef rather uh, in past years when it comes to any kind of breast cancer research is we're not placing an emphasis on diversity of women of color. So we need to make sure that as we produce these AI data sets, that they're reproducible across all populations, but they're also very diverse. And that's actually one of the, my next questions for you in terms of from being from a South Asian background, right? And, and from a, and not exactly from a breast cancer background, but from a cardiac perspective, from a diabetic perspective, we just have a higher prevalence of it in, in my genetic background, right? So, and the numbers when you go to a hospital in the US don't match in terms of where I should be potentially given my health history and my genetic makeup versus what's considered normal or with a quote unquote average American, right? And so similarly, I was gonna ask you, how do we get to the point where we're comfortable that the numbers or that the screening that the AI tool is using represents the patient that it's being used on as opposed to perhaps a generic um, person, which is probably going to be the average white American male, right? Sure. So how, how do you, how, how and when do we get to that point? Or how do you get comfort as a physician working in the space that I, I can use this across my entire patient cohort? Sure. You know, again, to be very realistic, you know, we're just not there yet in the United States. Uh, we also need to make sure that these AI algorithms are free of bias. And we know specifically those of us who have an interest in the AI, AI space, we know that, you know, approximately like in radiology, we have about 9% who are using AI, uh, specifically that's more homegrown and not, uh, you know, that is maybe partnering with a vendor that's partnering with multiple practices and hospital systems throughout the country. So then we get worried again about bias, because if you have a homegrown AI tool, uh, can that be reproducible amongst the general population? Uh, Europe is really, you know, making some incredible strides in terms of AI and, and essentially being able to serve larger populations. And we are now just starting uh, to dip our feet into the United States. And a lot of this has to do with FDA regulation 
information. Our government is being very, very uh, stringent about what is FDA approved which is, and what is not. And I think that's wonderful. I mean, I think that we need to get this right, obviously, for our patients. And so that's why if the FDA, the government's being very judicious about what, you know, is being approved uh, for use. So although we have, you know, a ways to go, I think that we will get there at some point. It, we have, you know, admittedly kind of been slower to adopt AI in the United States. Uh, we've been talking about it for five, six years now. We were starting to see more and more uh, vendors in the market, more uh, institutions uh, starting to put together AI algorithms. Uh, but we're definitely not there yet. Uh, but hopeful in the future, if we just continue on with this, working with vendors, working with different institutions, working with the government, uh, that we can come up with products where we do feel comfortable uh, employing these across all populations. No, and that's uh, a great point. And for those not as familiar with the nuances of AI, especially generative AI, in terms of what you're specifically referring to, um, can you can you talk to us a little bit about the importance, and at first, maybe defining what you mean by bias, and then two, um, going into a little bit of why it's so important to get that right and to have a broad enough cohort so that you're getting the right results that you think you're getting. Yeah. So, you know, I think specifically, you know, with bias, we want to make sure that when we are utilizing an AI algorithm, that they are there is no bias towards a certain, whether it's gender, whether it's race, whether it's other uh, characteristics. It's almost like we need a blank slate when it comes to an algorithm being utilized on a patient uh, so that we have essentially uh you know, parity across all populations and subtypes. Uh, but that's definitely going to take time. Uh, and again, these AI algorithms, a lot of them are obviously, we have to use them over time. There's data sets that are learning from itself. Uh, so it definitely uh, is a long-term process. Uh, like I say, you know, AI is, it, you know, it's definitely not a panacea. It's something that we need to use over time uh, to improve our accuracy and utilization. Uh, but we need to come to a point where we, again, generalizability and reproducibility is important and that we're essentially colorblind uh, to be free of bias so that we can employ these algorithms for all patients. And from the vendors and, and what you've seen so far, do you see people working together to bring their data sets together to hassle the day when we have enough to overcome the, the risk of bias across the multiple disparate data sets people are using today? Yeah, you know, I think at first there was just from, you know, anecdotally with me and the work I've been doing in the field, I think there had been a little bit of hesitancy with practices and institutions uh, partnering with vendors uh, when it came to AI. And that's understandable. I think that, you know, there's always that uh, worry that are vendors just out to make money and do they really care about, uh, you know, patient quality and care and delivery. But, you know, over time, as I've been delving myself more into AI, I am seeing now that whether you're, you know, a, a private practice uh, in Missouri or you're maybe an ivory tower academic institution in New York, they are coming around to work together with vendors vendors because we know that we need each other. We need the vendors who have the scientists who have put together these AI algorithms that want to employ generalizability and reproducibility across all different practices and all, um, you know, different practices and institutions across the country. Uh, and I think that more and more academic institutions are learning that, you know, 
this is great that we're coming up with our own algorithms, but again, there's that worry about bias, uh, you know, just catering to their population, uh, the generalizability, reproducibility, and realizing that, hey, we need more diverse data sets. We're going to need to partner with others across the country. And so there are some of us who are now starting to come together, putting together our data, whether it's in the AI breast ultrasound space, whether it's in the AI mammography space, we know that we're only stronger together. And the more diverse data, the better this will be in terms of refining these AI algorithms so we can expedite widespread utilization of AI in the United States. Now, looking at the business case for it, because at the end of the day, money is important uh, across the board and, and, and the health system, you know, it, it, while it is providing care, it is also it needs to be a viable economic, um, you know, ongoing concern. The, the one of the questions I get, especially from tech entrepreneurs is IP with AI and who owns it and then given the data sets and then what you just said, it kind of leads right into it, which is if you've got shared data sets and you have the shared algorithm that comes out of that, how do you think about it? What kind of problems potentially uh, can you anticipate or do you see coming up or has that already been discussed and solved or there's a mechanism from that from previous examples of, of other situations where data was shared and solutions were created and IP didn't end up being an issue because, you know, some some model was followed. And is that replicable here? Yeah, honestly, I do feel that those, those are still legitimate concerns that I think that are being worked out in the AI space. Uh, and I think that's another reason why there can be a lot of hesitancy between uh, in practices and institutions uh, and vendors, investors uh, partnering together. Uh, there's a lot of uh, concerns about security and data. Uh, you know, it, specifically when we started embarking on this journey here at our, our hospital system, uh, there were a lot of questions, you know, going to legal about the implications of, uh, you know, what's happening to this, this patient's data? Where is it going? And unfortunately, now what we're seeing with hospital systems are more and more security data breaches in general. So that's really concerning, too. Uh, so I don't think, you know, I think this is something that is still ongoing. I think that there's no, you know, um, you know, there's no uh, really uh, defined uh, answer to it yet. But it's something I do feel that we're all working through uh, to ensure that there is security uh, for our patients and their data. No, and that's that's unfortunate, but true in terms of being able to, I mean, we just saw with HCA the last few days, right? Also yes. being faced with that. Um, yes. Yeah, yes. Um, what do you think the future holds for AI and for cancer care, not just at Liberty um, and not just in Missouri and, and, and stuff that you're working on, but also if you could answer that um, from a personal perspective here locally, but also on a broader perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think the future of AI and breast cancer detection, again, is, is so bright. Uh, I, you know, in terms of how many years is it going to take us to get there, I don't have a crystal ball, but I do think that there are many of us out there that are committed uh, to seeing this through. Uh, I think that there, again, there's so much uh, promise here when it comes to earlier cancer detection, reduction of false positives, uh, just triaging patients, making sure that patients who do have a cancer on their mammogram were able to get them in in a more expedient fashion. Uh, you know, some patients specifically have a, you know, don't get a result on a screening mammogram in this country for, you know, five, seven days. If we can, you know, 
reduce that time, uh, that would be wonderful too. Uh, I think that again, in this era of personalized uh, breast care, uh, risk assessing patients uh, is, is so, so important and having AI to help with risk stratification of patients, which patients need to be a little bit more uh, followed than others when it comes to their risk status. Uh, as many of us are now adopting risk assessment models uh, in our practices and institutions uh, to ensure that for women, we have heightened imaging surveillance and earlier imaging surveillance. So uh, there, it's, there's so many facets of this. It's very fascinating with AI and just the modalities. Now we've seen AI breast ultrasound. We've seen AI mammography. There's work being done now with AI MRI. Uh, so we're really, really excited about the what the future holds with breast cancer uh, detection. And again, like I said, both the interpretive aspect, which I've been talking about, but just the non-interpretive aspect when it comes to workflow efficiency. We're all very excited of those of us who have interest in this space. No, that's fantastic. I'd love to just close with potentially, if you have one, of a recent case study or a patient case uh, that you can speak to um, in terms of uh, of a win and a success story of what the potential could be and what the future could hold for someone yeah. uh, of when AI helped. Mm -hmm. So we had a patient who had a uh, presented to me. So she had had a routine screening mammogram, no symptoms at an outside facility. And at about two to three weeks later, she started to feel a lump in her right breast. So uh, she ended up for some reason coming to our facility to have it evaluated. So I, you know, usually when this happens, we try to get all the prior outside studies, review them. And since she had just had, you know, a mammogram, I didn't want to unnecessarily radiate her again if I didn't have to. Uh, and I, you know, I looked at her mammogram and she had really dense breasts. So my could there be something hiding in the sea of tissue uh, that nobody can see uh, that she's feeling? So we went ahead and did an ultrasound, and I saw a mass there. And the mass honestly looked uh, pretty benign appearing. It looked like it could be just a larger cyst. She was in her 40s, so you know cysts are very common in women in their 40s. But I thought, you know, there was something about it, particularly along the margins of the, the lesion, where particularly with cysts, they tend to be more circumscribed, well delineated, and there was an edge of one of this uh, mass. And I thought, I don't know, let me go ahead and see what the AI algorithm shows. And I was totally blown away to see that it gave it a, basically a suspicious for cancer. And so from there, I thought, you know, let's just go ahead to be on the safe side and biopsy this. Um, and it's and, you know, and again, the AI really helped me in that regard. So I ended up um, biopsying it and it ended up coming back at cancer and I was completely floored. So I showed the case to one of my colleagues uh, who's uh, at the time, he's about 60 years old, who's been doing breast imaging for many years. And I said, you know, look at this case. And even he was blown away like, oh, my gosh, I think I would have blown that off. You know, I thought, ah, you know, it's just a tiny margin that's not, you know, specifically, you know, well delineated, but it's a cyst, no problem. Uh, but, you know, it was wonderful because we were able to catch it earlier for this patient. Uh, and it was specifically in the upper outer quadrant of her right breast. There was implications there for spreading to her lymph nodes. Uh, but luckily, her lymph nodes ended up being negative. So we were able to sort of uh, diagnose it when it was contained, which is really wonderful. So uh, AI, you know, to, in my eyes is showing so much promise. And in these cases that just amaze me, uh, really just reaffirm 
reaffirm that we're on the right track here. We just need more buy-in, I think, from our community. We need to be continuing to do more research, and then we need to ensure that we can have a widespread uh, implementation throughout the country. It sounds like you have the support of your administration and your hospital and your health system here. Do you feel like that's unusual for what you're doing with as as a radiologist? <laughs> I do. So whenever I take something to our administration, I'm always a little, you know, I, I admittedly, when I started working here, I was sort of a shock to the system. Um, I came from uh, Boston, Massachusetts, where, you know, we were working with MIT researchers and all these wonderful things at Harvard, and I, I loved it. Uh, but I, I had a vision to bring this back to the Midwest, specifically because I'm from here. Uh, and so, you know, it took some time for buying and, and explaining, you know, what it is I was trying to do here to accomplish for our patients. But luckily, we have very uh, forward-thinking leadership. As you know, our uh, CEO here, Dr. Adiga, is very, very forward-thinking. Uh, he himself is a physician. He understands AI. He has bought into AI, which makes it a lot easier. But I do realize a lot of my colleagues throughout the country have administration that may not be physicians or may not be as familiar with AI. Uh, and so that can be challenging. So I'm very, very fortunate to be somewhere where I have this kind of support so we can try to deliver this care to our patients. For those of your peers that might be listening and that would love to be able to get where you are with, with doing the work that you're doing locally at, at their local hospital, what's your best piece of advice for them in terms of how to get administration on board or how to get your colleagues on board to, to get where you need to be? Sure. Honestly, I think the best way is to reach out to some of us who are uh, having success in this space because strategy is so important. And the strategy of how you get this executed at your hospital system or practice is going to be different for everybody. Uh, so I think reaching out to those who have sort of achieved success, they can help you navigate uh, the current climate and the culture that you're in uh, to ensure your success. So again, there's many of us in the field and a lot of us on social media that you can reach out to uh, that are specifically in the AI space that we can just help you. Uh, but truly understanding, you know, the culture and the strategy of your leadership, and then from there knowing how to execute a success plan truly is important. And then kind of wrapping it up and bringing it back to what you started with is important to you, what got you into the space to begin with. You grew up in the state, you wanted to, you know, work on access and, and bring that back to kind of your community. Um, do you feel like you've been able to do that? And, and I, I don't know when you if you go back to your hometown, is that something that you're excited to see and maybe one day bring, you know, the services like the advanced services of like what you're doing in, in a major city in your state to, to kind of see it in every hometown really for everyone? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely seeing uh, the changes. Where I practice, my hometown's a little over an hour away, so I actually do see a lot of patients from my hometown, which is really neat to see that I can give back. Uh, and I've also been really fortunate to pass uh, breast imaging, different pieces of breast imaging legislation in the state of Missouri that's impacted all Missouri women uh, who have insurance through Missouri. So just seeing the impacts I've been able to make legislatively, uh, whether you know it's through the legislature uh, for insurance coverage, whether it's AI, uh, whether it's delivering subspecialized breast care. I've truly seen it in the last five years that I've been here, uh, and I'm very, very grateful. That's fantastic. Well, Dr. Patel, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. This is such an enlightening conversation, not just on what you can do with AI and the potential for it in, in breast cancer detection, but just how someone that is as mission-driven as you can make an impact in both their hospital and their community. So thank you. Thank you.